This is RAF with Tony Tone and LA. <laughs> Yo, what's up? It's Sport LA, aka the Love Ambassador, coming to you straight, live, and direct from the Jungle Studios. Well, thank you very much for uh, you know all the support that you've been given in the last couple of months. If you want to check out my IG page for more information, it's at Random Attractive Friends. I repeat, at Random Attractive Friends, or at the Real LA Twenty One. Uh, please subscribe, 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 because as always, promoting this is biatch. Alright, so, I decided to call this, um, this next uh, episode today, uh, To Die With Honour. Uh, and the reason why I'm calling it To Die With Honour is because uh, there's an old saying that, um, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Meaning that basically, depending on which side that you look at at an argument, there'll be some which are uh, believed to be for their cause and others that don't. So given the fact that we are uh, listened to all over the world throughout the Middle East, and there is uh, forever conflict in that region, so I thought I'd approach it with a neutral uh, neutral header, and then just read from an observation and allow people to, whatever they think, you know, judge from there. But uh, what I'm talking about is uh, what is considered, at least, to be one of the most daring rescues attempts in history. Uh, it's known as Operation Jonathan, um, and the article is by Jeremiah Jark. That's J-A-C-Q-U-E-S. All right. Um... Let's start. The men knew they had to succeed, said Dr. Edo Netanyahu, speaking to the trumpet during August 9th telephone interview. Netanyahu is just describing one of the most dramatic hostage rescue attempts in history, Operation Entebbe. Operation Entebbe took place in southern Uganda on July 4th, 1976. It has been called a defining moment in the war on terror. Like I said, um, for many people, they would have seen those that were called the terrorists as um, for their uh, for their cause. So, like I said, I'm just reading the article by the Murray of Book Guild. It has inspired more than a dozen documentaries and feature films, including this year's Seven Days in Entebbe. So, let's find out what it was actually about. On Sunday, June 27th, Air France Flight 139 was en route from Tel Aviv, Israel, to Paris. France, after a stopover in Athens, Greece. The Airbus A300 was carrying 254 men, women and children, around a third of whom were Israeli. Oh, sorry, there's just a... Uh, ignore that. Ignore that. Because um, I can't be bothered editing, let's just keep going. Shortly after takeoff from Athens, four passengers took up and, and stood up and took out guns and grenades, seizing the cockpit, planting explosives alongside the aisles, confiscating passports and announcing that the plane had been hijacked and everyone aboard was now a hostage. 
One terrorist announced over the cabin microphone that the flight had been taken over in the name of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Two of the four terrorists were Arabic men belonging to a Popular Front breakaway faction. The two others were a German couple, Wilfred Bost and his female companion, Bridget Corman. They were members of a German leftist terrorist group that supported the Popular Front. When Flight 139 fell silent on radio waves, Israeli intelligence forces immediately began investigating. Had the plane crashed? Sasirat Matko, referred to as the unit, went on high alert. The terrorists had the plane refueled in Benghazi, Libya, then took off again. Forced to keep their window shades drawn, the passengers flew for five hours, finally landing early on the morning of June 28. Allowed to open the shutters, the hostages looked out. There in the tarmac stood a notorious figure that many instantly recognised. Wearing heavily decorated camouflage fatigues was a 6 foot 4 inch 250 pound frame of Ugandan dictator Idi Amin. Amin had seized power five years earlier in a military coup and was notorious for killing as many as 300,000 of his countrymen. Idi Amin gave himself a... uh, whole bunch of names which yeah, would take us five minutes to read out. Now the hostages were in his territory surrounded by his troops, Amin supported the terrorists and directed his soldiers to support them. There was a complete collusion with the dictator Amin and the army, Edu Netanyahu said. Here at Entebbe Airport, three additional terrorists joined the four hijackers and dozen of Ugandan troops. The terrorists herded the passengers into an abandoned terminal building. This actually seen as off uh, the film with um, Forrest Whitaker, um, the King of Scotland. Yeah, so you can see that if you want to watch the movie, it's a good film as well. The next day, the terrorists issued the demands. $5 million in the release of 53 pro-Palestinian terrorists imprisoned in Israel, West Germany, Kenya, France and Switzerland, one of whom had killed 26 people and injured 80 at an Israeli airport four years earlier. The terrorists at Entebbe said if their demands were not met by 2pm on July 1st, they would begin executing hostages. Back in Israel, the government of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin was in overdrive considering its options, and its options didn't look good. Entebbe was more than 2,200 miles away. It was in the heart of Africa, far beyond the region where Israeli, Israeli intelligence and assets were strongest. Any rescuers would have to legally fly near or through the airspace of enemy nations. If they arrived safely and undetected, they would be up against not just radical terrorists, but also a national military under the command of a volatile dictator. And they would be attempting to rescue what Netanyahu said was an amount of hostages that was unheard of in Israel before. A rescue attempt will put political considerations, international support, and somewhat around 100 troops at risk in addition to the hostages. The main obstacle facing the Israelis was the lack of information. No real plan could be constructed because there was no information about what was happening in Entebbe. Giving into the hijackers' demand would release dozens of murderous terrorists back onto the streets of the world and would encourage more terrorism and hijackings in the future, yet it appeared that Rabin and the Israelis had no choice. Rabin felt that given the fact that the hostages were far away, thousands of miles away in the middle of Africa, he had no plan that he could approve, and he felt he couldn't just sacrifice these lives. But the Defence Minister Shimon Peres and others saw things differently. They had no choice but to resist terrorism and dared to attempt a rescue. Then something surprising happened. Several days into the hijacking, they let most of the hostages go, and those who were not Israeli nor typical-looking Orthodox Jews from other nations were flown to Paris. 
The terrorists also agreed to extend the deadline until 2pm Sunday, July 4th. From the descriptions provided by these released hostages, the Israelis got some badly needed information exactly where at the airport the remaining 106 hostages were being held, how many terrorists and soldiers were guarding them, and numerous other details. As the Prime Minister, his cabinet and the military chiefs furiously trying to formulate a rescue plan, one man was actually getting ready to carry out. Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Netanyahu, Jonathan, hence why the name Operation Jonathan, as you'll find out later, the brother of the current Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, 30 years old at the time, was commander of the unit, which is, as I said before, the sort of special, for, special forces. Jonathan Netanyahu and his team continued assembling every fragment of information available, formulating several possible rescue strategies. His commanders and Israeli leaders were intensely aware that any rescue would depend completely on taking the terrorists and Uganda soldiers by absolute surprise. As the hours ticked by, government officials closely monitored the military planning and stressed that unless the proposal was extremely strong, the government would have no choice but to break its policy of refusing to give in to terrorist demands. There was now some 48 hours left. The unit did not yet have approval from the Israeli government, but they prepared as if they did. They obtained a Mercedes limousine similar to the one Amin travelled in, but is in a poor condition of the wrong colour. They changed the plates, and they also added a Ugandan flag, and they also added Land Rovers to accompany the limousine, so it looked like it was a dozen soldiers going with the President himself. It was now Friday. If there was to be an operation, it would have to begin the next day. Jonathan and his team rehearsed the plan over and over again. The afternoon of Saturday, July 3rd, Jonathan Netanyahu and his team were in the air flying toward Uganda. The government still had not approved the mission, and the commandos thought their flight was merely a contingency. They would probably be recalled to Israel. Jonathan Netanyahu was focused, determined and confident. As the commando C-130s refueled in the southern Sinai, he briefed his men, not just reviewing the plan of tactics, but telling them what they were fighting for. He motivated them and told them how important this kind of mission is, that you can't give it into terrorism and for the sake of Israel and the Jewish people, we had to succeed. The commandos later said Jonathan Netanyahu's speech deeply impacted them. Many of the men say this really changed the whole perception of the operation and how they went into it. It gave them tremendous confidence they were going to succeed. The lead pilot, Joshua Shani, told others that Jonathan seemed like a hero out of our ancient past. A few hours later, they were airborne once again, flying over the Red Sea at low altitude to avoid Egyptian and Saudi Arabian radar. They reached Ethiopian airspace and bore south-southwest towards Uganda. Somewhere over Ethiopia, a message was delivered to the unit. Because Israel would not compromise with terrorists, largely because of Jonathan's confidence-inspiring preparations and his leadership, and because it was the right thing to do, the choice had become clear. Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin had approved the mission. In the middle of the night during the first few minutes of July 4th, four C-130s and two other transports approached Entebbe Airport, carrying the assault team, reinforcements, commanders and medical staff. The first transport touched down in the runway about a mile from the old terminal building. The cars quickly left the plane and made their way with full headlights. And about 200, years, 200 yards before the old terminal, exactly where Jonathan Netanyahu anticipated there would be Ugandan guards in the model exercises, indeed there were two guards. They were neutralised and they kept driving on. 
Despite short bursts of gunfire, the Israelis still had the most valuable advantage over the terrorist attack, the element of surprise. The commandos exited the vehicles, walking towards a building and scanning the area, but Jonathan Netanyahu sprinted ahead and ordered his men to run forward and enter the building. The men knew that each step and each door could bring Ugandan bullets, terrorist grenades and bomb tripwires, but they pushed ahead. There in the main hall of the old terminal were 106 hostages, 94 mainly Israeli passengers, and a handful of others, including the noble Air France crew who had refused to leave. The terrorists and Ugandan soldiers fired on the Israelis, but the commanders killed all seven terrorists and dozens of soldiers. At least five commandos were wounded, and Jonathan Netanyahu was also hit. Someone in front of the glass wall of the old terminal, Yoni was shot in the chest and basically could not go forward. So essentially, uh, but around him, commanders refilled the transport, destroyed Uganda Air Force fighter jets to prevent any pursuit. The lives Jonathan Netanyahu had helped save streamed onto the evacuation plane that would carry them to safety to freedom. Uh, unfortunately, he died. The operation had also only lost three other hostages. The intelligence had been patchy, the planning had been precarious, and the lead time had been minimal. Uh, the operation was an incredible example of taking on and defeating evil. It was codenamed Operation Thunderbolt and is commonly known as Operation Atembi, but it was later renamed Operation Jonathan after the man who gave his life to confront evil. Uh, the lessons, well, I mean, I guess the lessons is that um, you have to have courage in the face of adversity. I'll just save you about four paragraphs of that. All right, on that note, that's, uh, yeah, like I said, to die with honour. So um, depending on which side you want to sit, I'm pretty sure that you would say that in that situation that did definitely occur. Uh, coming into the last month of our podcast, but thank you very much once again for the amazing success we've had so far. Once again, please subscribe if you are tuning in and, uh, yeah, help make my life easier. All right, peace.